beloved congregation, for those of you who grew up with what is called covenant theology, I'm sure it's something that you virtually take for granted. The teaching that you have received in this church has reflected that view of the Reformation and Bible-believing churches who hold to the Reform Confessions and its teachings, that God's dealings with sinners are consistent across the entire scope of redemptive history. That God has one covenant of salvation where he comes to sinners with the promises of eternal life and forgiveness of sins through the person and work of Jesus Christ. and requires in that covenant that we bind ourselves unto God in Christ in the way of repentance and faith. This is the only way of salvation, and it is continuous across from the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, all the way through the New Testament scriptures that we see in Matthew to Revelation and throughout church history. This has been the confession of the church. But for myself, growing up in a different context where that was not so clearly taught or assumed or believed, getting exposed to this teaching was a bit jarring. I had a sort of idea that in the Old Testament, God had a particular plan for a physical people called the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, and it concerned a physical kingdom in a geographical place called Canaan or Israel, and that really the The gospel of Jesus Christ was, as it were, a plan B. Whereas Jesus Christ coming into the world did fulfill the promises given to Israel. When Israel rejected this message of the Messiah, then God had a a different way of bringing forth this message unto the nations. And before I thought through all... uh, of the scriptures and all that it meant to believe in covenant theology, in the united and consistent work of God in saving sinners by Jesus Christ, I was at first arrested by it in the singing of the Psalms. When I went into a Reformed church and for the first time heard Christians taking the words of the Psalms upon their lips, I was struck by by this awesome fact that the very songs that the apostles command Christians to sing, they place on our lips the stories of Israel, the histories of the children of Abraham, the promises of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in that way you come to see that we as believers are the true Israel, as indeed Paul refers to us in uh, Galatians chapter 6. And so there's every reason for us to profit as new covenant believers from reflecting upon God's dealings under the old covenant administration of his covenant of grace. Here in the 95th Psalm, we have a very striking example of that. God gives us the history of, of his church as it was wandering in the wilderness. 
and bears forth this clear command which echoes throughout the ages and has great relevance to you and I. He says in verse 8, Harden not your heart. Harden not your heart. That will be our theme this afternoon. And I'd like to unpack that for us with just two thoughts. First, what this means, and second, the reasons why. Harden not your heart. What this means and the reasons why. Well, this psalm written by David, as the New Testament uh, tells us, this psalm written by David, it is causing the audience of this psalm to reflect upon the history of God's dealings with his people in the wilderness. You can see from the surrounding context of the verse, beginning in verse 9, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, 40 years long was I grieved with this generation, and said it is a people that do err in their heart. They have not known my ways unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. The context is the wanderings of the people of God in the wilderness. We understand, don't we, children, that God saved his people from slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm through his servant Moses. It may be... You remember that that man Moses, he went on many occasions to the king of Egypt. I wonder if you remember what that man's name was. Yes, it was Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Moses had a message from God. He said, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Well, it says time and time again that as Moses came with this message, Pharaoh hardened his heart. There was a word from God given to him, but there was this response. There was this attitude on the part of that enemy of the Lord. He hardened his heart. And you see how that terrible tragedy unfolded. Plague after plague destroyed that land of Egypt. Frogs and boils, locusts, hail, darkness, the slaying of the firstborn. And ultimately, even to the very end, this Pharaoh, he pursued the children of Egypt and was ultimately destroyed in that great deliverance where the Lord led his people through the Red Sea. Hardening your heart. It's Something that doesn't only speak to someone like that, a hardened enemy of God, someone who is completely apart from God's covenant. It also is something that the people of God need to hear. Even that people who were led out of Egypt, they had to hear this command from verse 8, harden not your heart. Now what is the heart? Well, of course, we're not talking about that muscle in the body, which is so central to natural life. It pumps blood throughout the body, and it's something that without which we cannot live even for a few moments. 
No, when we speak of the heart in this sense, we have in mind what the author of the Proverbs said when he said in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Here we speak about the will and the affections, the inner person that steers all the choices of life. This is talking about something more than our mere mind in the sense of understanding things. It's talking about something more than just having a grasp of facts. You know, what we do with the facts, how we receive them, whether we, del- we delight in them, whether we, we trust in them, whether we are governed in a good way by them, these are issues of the will of the heart, and they concern especially how we respond to God. A heart that is hardened against God, like Pharaoh is, it's like a a clenched fist. It's clenched tight in that way that cannot hold or grasp anything. It is hardened. Maybe you understand that, children. If if mommy and daddy were to try to hand you something and your your fist was clenched like that, you couldn't take that, could you, from from your mommy or daddy? It's when the hand is is opened. We are receptive to what is being given to us. Well, that's like a heart that is soft and responsive to the word of God. Someone who hears the word of God, receiving it in trusting faith, they are those who are responding rightly, as God would require them when the word of God is spoken to them. And so the Bible talks about hardening of the heart as that which is opposed to faith. Hebrews chapter 3, which cites this very psalm that we read, it It says in Hebrews 3, verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you, there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Unbelief, faithlessness, not taking God at his word. This is a hard heart. I'd also say that the opposite, that A hard heart is the opposite of a repentant heart. Not a heart that is uh, submitting to God's will, obeying God's commandments. Instead, a hard heart is resisting God, disobeying God. Thus, we see in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, where it speaks of the unbeliever after the hardness and impenitent heart treasuring up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So to have a hard heart when God would address you with his word, it is to refuse to believe that word and to refuse to repent in the light of that word. So I can describe it in these ways. I can define it 
by comparing Scripture with Scripture. But here in our text, we have something that's even more accessible for us to understand. We have this played out in living history. The history of the children of Israel, which I trust all of us have learned from our mother's laps. Consider this example uh, that we can learn from the history of Israel about what it is to harden our hearts against the Lord. Well, the first thing to understand is that to harden our hearts is to put God to the test. Something that you could gather even from uh, the words surrounding our our text where um, he says in uh, verse 8, Harden not your heart as in the provocation as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Now what is especially being referred to is that episode that you find in Exodus chapter 17, which is very famous. It was shortly after the Lord had brought his people out of Egypt And they were pitching their tents in a land called Rephidim. And as you read that history, you come to see that the great problem the people faced was that there was no water for them to drink. Now, you would think that having seen such an amazing work of God of bringing them out of Egypt, bring all those plagues to destroy the enemy, bring them through the Red Sea, that surely they would have thought, well, this is no great thing with such a God. Surely God has a plan. He did not bring us out here just that we would die. But what we see in that story is is something that's very hard to to really explain. There you have the people, and, and what they begin to do is they begin to accuse Moses. They say, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, why chide with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Incredible. They are suddenly accusing the servant of the Lord as one who is meaning to destroy them. And ultimately behind that, of course, is not just an offense against Moses, but an offense against God. You see in verse 4 of Exodus 17, And Moses cried out unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee the elders of Israel, and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river. Take it in thine hand, and go. And you read that history about how he instructed, in the presence of all the elders, Moses struck that great rock with his staff, Out of it gushed all of this water, able to sustain all the people they drank and lived. But the psalmist records this episode for us to ponder and to think about what it means to tempt God. I think this is especially acute where a sinner has received an amazing display of God's goodness and grace. Maybe they've had the privilege of being part of a visible church that preaches the gospel. Maybe they have seen other people amazingly saved. 
truly converted unto Jesus Christ. Maybe even themselves, they've, they've been given a, a measure of liberty to turn away from sin, to begin to serve the Lord, at least in an external way. And yet, after a time, when hard times come upon that person, when afflictions and troubles, their heart begins to question God, begins to accuse, begins to have hard thoughts of the Lord, beginning to turn back to our old lusts and temptations until gradually there is a departure from the living God, as the apostle warned. Tempting God in the face of the displays of his greatness, saying, I do not believe I can trust this God, instead giving into a carnal mind. You think about the Lord Jesus himself. He, as well, was brought into a wilderness. You know that, don't you? After his baptism, the Spirit led him into that wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. The devil tempted him in various ways. And there was that occasion where he brought the Lord Jesus from that wilderness in his, in his weakened state from all that time without food and water, brought him to the top of the temple and said, Jump down. Surely the Lord will take care of you, Jesus. Surely, if you just jump down, you can have a persuasion that the Lord, he is for you. And of course, the Lord Jesus responded in that occasion, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The idea there is that we must always take God at his word. The word of God is enough. We are not especially by forsaking him and his word and his ways, giving in to the temptations of the devil to tempt him in the least way, as we see in this passage. But I put this as well from the the history of uh, the children of Israel, that when we we, um, are hardening our hearts against God, it especially arises in connection with worship. It arises in connection with worship. And of course, you're familiar with that story from Exodus chapter 32, where this very same people who had been been redeemed through Egypt and then been saved again at Rephidim by the the giving of water, they, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And the Lord's servant Moses, he goes up onto that mountain to receive a revelation from the living God, the holy commandments of God and the covenant which he would make with that people there in the wilderness. But as Moses was delayed in coming down the mount, it says in Exodus 32, verse 1, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Make us gods, which shall go before us, For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not not what is become of him. And so you read on how Aaron, he collected all the golden earrings from the people. And he he assembled these and he melted them down and, and he used them to fashion a golden calf. And as recorded there in Exodus 32, verse 4, he even said unto the people, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. 
And there you have this, this terrible occasion where, uh, as this is being said, Aaron, he tries to make the best of the situation and he, he gr- brings out this, this altar and tries to turn it unto a feast to the Lord. There you have it, a short period of time where Moses was absent from the people. And what happens is they begin to corrupt and distort the worship of God. They begin to fashion a God according to their own imagination in order to worship in the place of the true and living God. Now, of course, we would, of course, recognize that there are people who call themselves Christians who yet look at passages like this and and do not come with the conclusion that they must take great care in how they worship God. There are Christians who would say, well, God has changed. He doesn't care if you worship according to the commands of the Bible anymore. He will be worshipped in whatever way pleases us. But I trust there are none who would be with us this afternoon. Surely there'd be none here who would say we must corrupt the worship of God with our own imaginations. We must stick to the Bible and worship God only in the way that he has commanded. But I put to you that if you would harden your heart, it will still manifest itself in connection with the worship of God. Surely there's no one here who would go home and fashion a golden idol and have you bow down before them throughout the week. But what does go on in your home? Is your home a place of secret prayer? If someone would walk beside you every moment of every day and look at how much time you devote to prayer, the importance that you give unto it. If your heart could be seen and, and the, the desires of your heart offered up before the Lord in prayer could be known, what is it that would be displayed? Of course, though I and the others of the church can't so follow you around, we can't so look into your heart, there is one whose whose all-seeing eye knows all about you. What place does personal worship have with you? Are you someone who is content just to know a little bit about the Bible? Maybe a few scattered verses here and there, maybe you'll, you'll read to appease your conscience. But in terms of of reading the word of God seriously, of pouring over it, of memorizing it, of of applying it to your own soul, well, it's it's really not something that exists for you. For those of you who are heads of your home, what place does family worship have with you? Is it crucial, brothers, for you that if you have time to eat, If you have time to sleep, then surely you and your family have time to spend with God, opening the Bible, praying together as a family, giving instruction to those under your charge. Or how about public worship? Public worship, is this really the the, the delight of your soul? Is this not the market day of the soul as our fathers would say, a whole day separated unto the worship of God, rest 
from our daily labors, hearing the word of God read and sung and preached and applied unto our hearts, meeting with God in his worship. Is this what you delight in? Or is it enough for you that you bring your bodies into this place while your minds and hearts are a million miles away? Well, there's no ultimately escaping it. When it comes to the worship of God, these things will come out. You know, we understand, don't we, that there are those people whom we love, even in our families, who once saw the worship of God as something important, who once saw actually communing with God and the way is appointed as crucial, and yet we know that they are now living apart from the Lord, not absent from worship with a good reason because of health or or other providential circumstances, but simply because they do not desire to frequent a place of worship. Oh, it's a terrible thing when people actually forsake the living God. And it begins with this hardening of heart, and it, it ripens and develops, as we see in the terrible fruits of apostasy. We'd say this as well in connection with hardening your heart. Not only is it a testing of God, is it exposed in how we treat God's worship, but I'd say in the third place, it is incompatible with receiving the promises. Incompatible with receiving the promises. And we know, don't we, how that story of that first generation of Israelites out of Egypt, how that progressed. The Lord led them through much journeying throughout the wilderness until finally they came to the very edge of the promised land. And you read about that history there in the book of Numbers, how it was that a representative of every tribe, a spy, was sent into the promised land in order to scope it out. This plan that had been, this land that had been promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that the God of Israel had separated unto them as a place of blessing and rest and worship. Well, those spies, they came back, didn't they? And all but two, all but the Lord's servants, Caleb and Joshua, all they could speak about was the challenges. Oh, this place is inhabited by great giants. They will make mincemeat of us. There is no possible way that this, this can, can stand. There's no possible way we can take this land for ourselves. The, law, the Lord God of Israel has brought us out here just to die. This people, time and time after time, they had hardened their heart against God. And it all had come down to this. They had come to the very richest inheritance of the promised land, and yet they refused to enter. And you see how it was that uh, the Lord spoke about that generation. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 22, Because all those men which have seen my glory, my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have now hearkened and have not hearkened unto my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. 
And so it was that judicial punishment of the Lord that the people would wander for all those years until the last of that generation died in the desert. And it would be their people who would inherit, their children, the children of that people who would inherit the promises of the land. And what are we to make of that? Was this just a, a temporal lamb? Was it just uh, the case of a, of a transaction revolving real estate? No. No, if you search the scriptures and you see the, the main argument also of our text here in Psalm 95, you see that there was something much more at stake here. That land of the, of the promise, it was a type and symbol of that heavenly land, that heavenly promised land wherein righteousness dwells. It was a lesson, isn't it? That it's only those who do not harden their hearts, who will receive the promises of God's saving covenant. And so it can be that sometimes that in the face of receiving a gospel ministry, of hearing the gospel with clarity week after week, the difficulties and the challenging challenges of inheriting those promises become too much. And people refuse to submit to the gospel. And so it may be that there may be this challenge or that challenge. It may be that you, my friend, you hear about how the gospel requires you to repent. To turn from your sins and to submit unto Jesus Christ as Lord. And you look at your bosom sins. And you look at those things which you treasure that you could never live without. And you say, this is too much. There are giants in this land. I surely cannot do as the gospel requires. Or perhaps it could be that, that you just find that in the face of all the promises of the gospel, you cannot believe them for yourself. You can say, oh yes, for others. For others they may find Jesus Christ as he's offered as the mediator and savior. But for myself, I am so plagued with doubts, so plagued with distrust, I cannot submit myself unto the gospel of peace. There are giants in this land too great for me. And so it is. So it is that also today people harden their hearts. Even among the visible covenant people of God, even within the visible church, and they do not receive the promise. I trust that this, even through the history of Israel, has has illustrated something about what this command means. Harden not your heart. Let's see in the second place why, why, the reasons why, why it, it must be that we must not harden our hearts. What are the mighty arguments and truths which the word of God reveals that conquer this hardness of heart? And serve to soften the child of God to receive the blessings of the gospel. Well, the first thing I would note is that we must face this. That to harden our hearts is offensive to the majesty of God. If you find yourself with a hard heart of unbelief and unrepentance this morning. Then this is what you first must be faced with. That this God in whom you harden your heart against. He is the true and living God. 
Think of what is described of this great God in our psalm here. It says in verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his. And he made it. And his hands formed the dry clay. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Here is a psalm that sets forth the majesty of God as the creator, as the all-sufficient one, as the one in whom has all authority and dominion, might and wisdom and glory. He is the true God. He is the living God. And it could be that if you have a hard heart this afternoon, that God is just a word to you. But have there never been times, whether in the stillness of those times when you are all by yourself, alone with your thoughts, and your mind begins to turn to him, the one who inhabits eternity, the one who fashioned the stars, the one who made you and your mind, the one that before whom you will stand, when you pass into eternity upon your physical death, you think about this God and you begin to think, what must I do in the face of this God? How will I deal with him? How will I factor him into my life? If all of life is about him, then what does it mean to harden your heart against such a God? This God who is the only reason for living. The beginning and the purpose and the plan of everything. It is in his hands. He is the goal and the purpose of all things. For you to harden your heart against him. In defiance of the king of heaven is a higher treason and a greater crime. Than any treason against a worldly government ever could be. To be an enemy of God, is to be at war with all of creation, is to be at war with yourself. It is the worst of offenses. You know, it's illegitimate. You may excuse yourself and say that you were were born into a sin nature. You may say that this or that about your background excuses your hardness of heart. You may say that the devil has you in his grip, but let me tell you something, that all the power of your sinful flesh and all the power of the devil, it is illegitimate. Here is the only real legitimate authority, the God of heaven and earth, commanding your soul and mind and heart, you submitting unto him. He is the only right, the only one with any right to reign in your soul. Consider that, my friend, the majesty of God. In the second place, consider how hardening your heart is offensive to the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. This is one of the most precious names for the gospel of salvation. The gospel is a firm promise whereby God comes to us and says, I will be your God. And you will be my people. Here is the covenant of grace. And it sets forth in such a beautiful way in this uh, song. He says, for he is our God. In verse 7. And we are the people of his pasture. And the sheep 
of his hand. There is God as a loving shepherd, caring for his sheep so gently and tenderly, providing for them, as it says in that wonderful 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And of course, this is ultimately fulfilled in the great Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, the good and the great and the chief shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice. He says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you would understand the covenant of grace, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about himself as our mediator and savior. There's no salvation apart from him. And all the blessings of the gospel and the covenant of grace, they all come back to him. And he, when he comes to us in his gospel, it's not just as a dry contract, as though here are the terms of it, and please just sign on the dotted line. No, in the most personal and loving way, he comes to us. And he brings those offers of salvation in the gospel of his grace. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He comes to us with pleadings, even against a hardened people. He has this to say as we find it in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 65, verse 2. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good, after their own thoughts, a people that provoked me to anger continually to my face. Here is something that is almost impossible to understand. A gracious and a loving Savior in the face of a people who have time after time hardened their hearts against him, refused him, rejected him, refused to believe, refused to repent. Yet he persists. Yet he persists with those loving calls to be received life and life eternal. You think of the Lord Jesus there outside of that city, Jerusalem, weeping tears, real tears, and saying, as we see, as, uh, and we see there in Luke chapter 19 and verse 42, he said, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid. From thine eyes. Is it not what the Lord Jesus would say unto some people, even here today? I would bring you peace. I would bring you the true fellowship with myself and with my Father. I would save you from your sins. But these things are hidden from your eyes. I'm stretching forth my hands all day long to a wicked and disobedient people. But instead of seeing those open hands ready to receive, they are clenched closed like their wicked and rebellious hearts. Here is what we all are by nature, congregation. We're all those who would harden our hearts in the face of the amazing grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but his word stands faithful. There's an open door here, an open door which you may walk through. What hinders you today from taking this gospel and believing it to the uttermost? From taking Jesus Christ as your very Savior, embracing him in faith, and saying, I have no hope apart from you. I trust in you alone and to no one else and nothing else. You alone are my Savior. What is the cause? Would you ascribe unwillingness on the part of God? Would you ascribe unwillingness on the part of Christ, this Savior who cries tears over the impenitent hearts? Surely you must bring it back to yourself. must bring it back to that hardened heart and come to see that this is your enemy. This is what would destroy you. This is what would keep you back from receiving the promises. Yourself. Yourself. Confess your hardness before the Lord. Go to him with tears and say, I have betrayed you, the King of glory, the mediator of the covenant, the Savior of sinners. I have turned unto broken cisterns when you are the living water. Turn unto Jesus Christ, the covenant of grace. This is offended where we harden our hearts. But I'd say this in in the third and last place. And that is the reason why you must not harden your hearts is that time is so short. Time is so short. You notice how it's put there in verse 7. Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Have you ever gone through this history of Israel? And have you ever grown so angry and frustrated with this stiff-necked and hard-hearted people? Do you not want to shake them and say, Do you not remember how the Lord led you through that Red Sea? Do you not remember how he provided you water there in the wilderness? Don't you remember how the Lord spared you even after you fashioned that golden calf? How could you betray him time after time? And of course, you know, it wasn't just enough that that generation perished in the wilderness. Their children, their children's children, and their children's children were always tempting the Lord. Always those who rejected him and hardened their hearts against him. A long history of sin and judgment, of slaying of the prophets. But before we would be too hard on the old covenant people of God, ought we not to see that this is a picture of you and I? How often have you and I hardened our hearts, rejected his overtures of mercy? How many of us can say that if it had been that moment or this moment in which the Lord had taken me, when I had died, if I had died then, then surely I would have plunged into hell. But the Lord spared me. The Lord guided me. The Lord brought me back. And then the time came where the Lord Jesus was precious. And we, we closed with him. We embraced him in faith. And we said that we have given up the fight with grace. We've surrendered our all unto him. And if you are still in that position today, where you are still hardening your heart in the truest sense, 
and recognize that your time is short. It's today, today that this word comes to us. Today is the day of salvation. We don't know if we will have another Sabbath with which to come before the Lord takes us. We don't know if we will pass into that that place which is so mysterious and so terrifying in which one hardens and hardens and hardens their hearts such that there is no repentance possible. We read about that in the morning, didn't we? There in that passage of Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him unto an open shame. It's a mysterious thing. While falling short of true conversion, yet there can be those common operations of the Spirit of God, illuminating the reality of sin and the terrifying nature of hell. And there can be a time where there's a temporary faith, which yet passes away as the mist in the morning. And all that is left is a heart that is completely hardened against the ways of God and given over even to trampling the Son of God himself. But dearly beloved, there is no cause for this at all. I am persuaded that a great many of you, you have come to this knowledge of the truth. You have come to the knowledge of Christ. But where there is any hardness in us, that must be dealt with. We must come to see that this day is so short that is given unto us. If we would be brought into a complacency, a laziness, which stops to take heed unto ourselves and unto our hearts, then that is the first step of those who would deceive themselves unto their destruction. If the Lord has wrought a good work in you, you will hold fast to Christ. You will mourn all the hardness that, you, that yet lives within you. You will turn away from him. And you will come again and again unto this throne of grace, pleading his mercy. Brothers and sisters, consider the crucified Savior. Look upon him there upon the cross, bearing the pains and agonies of his people, the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. If you would look upon that, look upon that in faith, can you not see that there is no place for hardness in the face of such love and grace? Embrace him today. Know the forgiveness of sins through his shed blood. Will not his resurrection power give you 